Welcome to Almost Here, Round the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Future technologies poised to transform our lives for better or worse are the focus of this podcast. Almost Here means these technologies are now here and starting to be used or just around the corner from Bitcoin to artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more. Hi, this is Richard Jacobs with Future Tech Podcast. Uh, around the corner, almost here, technology, and I'm here today at Factum, live in their offices with Brian Deary, uh, chief scientist at Factum. How you doing, Brian? Good to be here. Yeah, thanks for taking the time. So, uh, you know, for listeners, some are lay people, some know more, but real basically, what is Factum? What does it do? Hmm, that's a that's a tough question. So that's like asking, what is Bitcoin, <clears throat> or what is Ethereum? It's uh, Lots of things that can be classified many ways. Um, the explanation of factum that uh, I like to give right now is it's a, a <clears throat> document management system. Um, that's the way it was optimized. So documents being documents interpreted by people or documents interpreted by computers um, or things that are not really, that would be, not really considered documents uh, by traditional sense. Um, <clears throat> so um, it's a way to publish documents um, or things that you need people uh, to coordinate on okay. and, uh, and, and use uh, future te- technology for that. Yeah, so what's, what's the big why? Why was Factum created the company in the first place? Like, What was the big idea on the technology you're creating, what's it, what was it supposed to do originally, even if it has changed or not? Um, for me, this technology was created... Uh, a lot of people here have um, different uh, different motivations. Paul Snow has um, his motivations that uh, he was trying to build a, um, a distributed uh, software management platform. <clears throat> uh, so... GitHub is uh, one good example of this. Um, okay. The problem with this is he needed an identity management system. Um, one of the things inside GitHub is <coughs> you have these these names associated with the individual developers, and you trust individual developers, um, different people on GitHub for uh, to do different things. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in Bitcoin, there are only a handful of people who are allowed to commit things into the code for example, um, and the community trusts those, and if there's a fork of Bitcoin in a different repository uh, managed by different identities, you would trust those in a different manner. Um, But the problem boiled down to was uh, an identity management system. So right now, GitHub has absolute control over those identities. Okay. Okay. Control meaning, like, uh, who they allow to post to GitHub or control in another way? Um, Well, GitHub is pretty much just a big database. Um, And so they are the database administrators with God mode over the the database. And whatever you can do with the database, you can do with, with GitHub. Now, they do try to do some protections against it. So uh, there's things like code signing... Um, that uh, 
is occasionally used, but it's um, it's a it's a halfway effort. <clears throat> okay. And so, and what there, there could theoretically be corruption at GitHub. If, you know, not that this would happen, but let's say uh, Bob Smith was one of the contributors, and you know they could change his code so it was malicious, and Bob Smith didn't do it, and you know therefore he looks bad, and that kind of thing, because it's not decentralized. Not that it would happen, but it's a possibility, essentially, right? They, uh, there, certainly is a possibility. I mean, there are things that you can do to sign your code, but then the problem is, how do you trust the signatures that that code is? So what it really boils down to is, you are trusting GitHub.com to to manage that those identities. Okay. Uh, and that's the basically the state of the world right now. So what was Paul's idea? I mean, we'll get to yours in sure, a second. Yeah. But so, so Paul sees that, and what, is, what does he want Factor to be that's different? Well, so he wanted this distributed software management system where you could just take a, uh, a like a, a seed of information, and then the seed of information would then uh, find what it needs to, to compile and build the software that would basically, from one... Uh, and, and Git is itself is, is very much like this. Or if you have one Git commit, it um, it shows it encapsulates all previous history of uh, all of the software and any single letter that's changed in the source code any at any point in the history would change that Git commit. Oh, so it's like blockchain similarly. Yeah, it's uh, Git was um, blockchain technology before blockchain. I guess you could look at it that way. It's it's just a hash chain. It's not um, it's not very uh, clever or um, uh, novel. But um, doing the implementation is the hard part. So um, to go off on a little bit of a tangent, <coughs> uh, Linus uh, Torvalds uh, he's most known for gifting the world with Linux. Um, he actually gifted the world with two incredible inventions. Uh, Git is the second one. Um, Git was a, a project built out of frustration of the current source code management um, environment that he was trying to develop Linux under. And so he decided, screw it, I'll do it myself. And built Git. That's oh, good. You said... Git is the de facto standard for what? Git, Git is now the de facto standard for how software is managed in um, certainly the open source world. And Git is G-I-T, not G-I-T. It's, okay. it's kind of a pun. Um, a Git is a, an unpleasant person in British English. Huh, okay. Um, and many people characterize Linus Torvalds as an unpleasant person. He's a Git? Okay. Yeah. <clears throat> so this this big missing piece in in Paul's vision of the future was a a distributed identity management system. <clears throat> and to do this, you needed to have a publishing platform. And so for him it was okay, let me build the lowest common denominator build the, the publishing platform, then on top of that we can build identity management system, and then on top of that, once you have identity management, you can build 
many, many, many more things. Okay. <clears throat> so, when I um, ran into um, uh, David uh, Johnston and, and Paul Snow at the uh, Chicago Bitcoin Conference, they uh, <clears throat> Paul was initially uh, telling me about uh, this crazy project he had called Notary Chains. Um, so... He told me about some things. I immediately poked several holes in his project, um, sent him some emails about uh, why it wouldn't work, and then um, and then later on they uh, asked me to uh, uh, help uh, help find found this uh, the Facto Open Source project. Oh, so instead of getting <coughs> pissed off, he saw it as you helping him, and he saw, oh, it's the smart guy, so I want him working with me. Sure. Yeah. Okay. Good. That's great. Um, so around this time, the um, the holy war in Bitcoin was starting to bubble up to the surface. Um, spring of 2014, I was telling uh, anyone who would listen, which was a small subset of my friends, about <clears throat> the impending holy war. I at the time I would characterize it as a holy war. Because it was um, Bitcoin jihad, or to me, it, it, it seemed like arguing over minor details, but people were getting extremely passionate about it. What was the war about? Um, the war was about whether or not uh, to increase the uh, the Bitcoin block size. So this has been going on for a long, long time. I don't think we need to talk about it, um, specifically on this podcast, but um, something needed to be done. Okay. Um, There was a lot of noise, a lot of buzz about how um, it was, I think it was, this was right before uh, Patrick Byrne hired the uh, overstock.com guys. Uh, or the, uh, sorry, the counterparty guys um, to take Wall Street and put it on the blockchain. Um, At this point, I realized that uh, if this went to fruition, it would um, collapse Bitcoin. Hmm. Um, Part of the the whole point of um, of, uh, Bitcoin is to spread all the information to all the full nodes. Okay. And if you take all the trades on Wall Street and spread it to all the nodes, that is um, a massive amount of information. <clears throat> okay. So the uh, the side chains projects were uh, were just being described. Um, they uh, they were so the uh, the the side chain projects were. <clears throat> Coming along with, um, uh, we're just coming on the scene. The, uh, the the two-way peg was starting to be imagined. Um, the Lightning Network was um, not uh, in anyone's imagination at the point. Um, there was talk of micropayment channels. Uh, that goes way back to um, the uh, twenty twelve. Um, uh, my current talk uh, back in back in the good old days when I wanted 
to explain to people uh, why I was excited about Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. I would send them this lecture, this speech that uh, Mike Hearn gave at the uh, 2012 um, London uh, Bitcoin Conference. <clears throat> In this uh, speech, he detailed uh, things like smart contracts, in a very rudimentary sense, uh, payment channels, um, smart property, um, the, uh, the the Kickstarter model of the what Bitcoin can do uh, at the base layer, and um, so this was basically describing how future money works, and it's not just <clears throat> a payment mechanism or a um, it's it's way more than just um, a better a better PayPal. Gotcha. Um, so where am I going with this? The so this was 2012. Um, so uh, at summer of 2014, micropayment channels were known. Um, they had problems because they. Uh, uh, you always had the transaction malleability problem, which would break a lot of this stuff. Um, that was a. I uh, I looked at it myself, trying to have ways of working around it, and you, the only way you could really solve transaction malleability is with a trusted third party, okay. which is the... Um, so, payment channels were known. There was some talk of having a payment provider that would link payment channels uh, between different people, but the idea was people wouldn't want to keep capital just to send it between two people through a third party. Mm-hmm. Um, that was that was the state of the systems. Payments payments were um, not very well uh, developed at that point, um, and so the the guys at uh, Blockstream with their sidechain technologies were um, forging ahead on how to move value off the blockchain, uh, a way to to, to move. Um, to, to increase the, the transaction speed and whatnot, um, increase privacy, that kind of thing, using sidechains. Um, no one was talking about moving data off the blockchain. Um, people might have been talking about it. Um, Let me get a plan. No one was. Uh, no one was talking about moving data off the blockchain. And so a lot of these projects were sorry, sorry, background um, noise. A lot of these projects were uh, just putting stuff directly on Bitcoin, and oh, that, so they were that just won't scale. Dumping tons of information into the blockchain itself. Yeah. Okay. So Mastercoin, for example, uh, and Counterparty, those are interpreted protocols, um, and so uh, it's described as embedded consensus at the time. So the idea is they would take. Uh, a transaction, it would be a fake Bitcoin transaction. It would be a real Bitcoin transaction, but it would have a little bit of extra data attached to it. Okay. And the extra data didn't mean anything to the miners. So they didn't know, they couldn't know if they could, they didn't know to exclude bad stuff. And so the way it would work is 
the MasterCoin client would download the entire blockchain, uh, go through, find any potential MasterCoin transactions, uh, check the transaction's validity. If it's valid, update the state. If it's invalid, it would throw it away. And so the state would always be managed um, locally on the on the end nodes, rather than being managed by the miners. Okay. Um, what this means is you need to get all the data. Uh, you can't do an SPV or some kind of trust delegation that the the Bitcoin um, uh, nodes. The light clients for your phone can do. Um, so you'd have to have the full node. You couldn't use parts of it. Yeah. To validate. Okay. Gotcha. Um, and so, when you were validating Mastercoin, you would also need a validate count. You would also need to download all the data for Counterparty. Oh. Wow. Okay. And all the data for ProofOfExistence.com, and all of Satoshi Dice, and basically everything in the blockchain, okay. just to throw out. Throw out 99.9% of it. And this problem is going to keep growing as the blockchain grows. So at some point, I would see it yep. be a, yep. an anger. And if Wall Street went on the blockchain, in order to validate your MasterCoin tokens, you would need to download and throw away all of Master all of Wall Street. Um, this didn't seem like a sustainable solution to me. Uh, but there was lots of demand for this type of interpreter. So, <clears throat> I saw this as just moving data off the blockchain. Um, we've come to call it a, a data layer for the blockchain. That's one of the, uh, okay. the ways we've described it. Um, when, when you say moving data off the blockchain, do you mean the keeping the blockchain clean and keeping the data tied into the blockchain, but just in a, in a way where it's not cluttering up the house? Um, I'm not sure that... Clutter or clean means anything in this context. Uh, it's a matter of volume. Okay. So in order to describe so many... In order to describe 100,000 transactions, it needs to fit within some amount of space. Right. Um, and unless you do something really clever and do some moon math, like um, Mimblewimble or something along those lines... Then you need to have all the data to to derive the state. Right. Um, and of course, Mimblewimble was nowhere on the radar. So my motivations were to provide a solution for this data to live in that did not was not directly on the Bitcoin blockchain. Okay. But you anchored by it in some way. So that it oh, was yeah. And it was, at the time, it was indisputable that, uh, that, that Bitcoin was this tremendous asset, this, uh, as Andreas Antonopoulos uh, gave speech about uh, a while back, a monument of immutability. Um, I highly recommend that, uh, that podcast. Um, but it, it was clear that the... Um, this was something that needed to be leveraged, and um, and we could uh, actually use this. Okay. 
so you know, Paul has his idea, you have your idea. Any other voices in Factum that have yet another reason for doing what you guys do? Um, David Johnston was uh, very much in the um, uh, MasterCoin community at the time. Um, he observed his own um, problems with uh, actually using MasterCoin, which was atrocious because you needed to wait six confirmations and even just waiting for one confirmation. It was waiting ten minutes for something to happen while you're sitting there on your offline computer waiting for something to confirm. That is a poor user experience. Right. So by adjusting the security model a little bit, um, we basically have these uh, federated servers. And these are sort of like our miners, but they're known beforehand rather than after the fact. So in Bitcoin, the miners are known after the fact. Um, We have this system where we're putting data in and um, you know beforehand who your miner is going to be. So this would be the equivalent of a... uh, a Bitcoin miner um, basically tell, giving you a, uh, a signed promise that they will include the transaction in the next block. Okay, because you're doing a small <coughs> amount, you know, like a, a minimal transaction on the Bitcoin blockchain. So, are you really the miner, or because you're you know you're putting your transacting value on the blockchain, the Bitcoin blockchain? By definition, someone's going to mine it. And it's a valid transaction, and it will be included in the block. Maybe I'm mixing, mixing analogies here. Okay. Um, so the federated servers um, are known beforehand uh, who will make the block hmm. in Factum. Okay. Oh, Factum. Yeah. Um, so when that federated server turns around and tells you, you will be transaction number 300 in this block, you can be fairly sure that that will be transaction 300. Okay. Now, it's still a, a process of eventual consistency. So you may be on a little data island with that federated server. And so the other federated servers who are collectively building the blockchain with that server may not have seen that promise. Right. And so basically boot that guy out of the, uh, out of the group because he's not... Um, He's not talking to them, right. at which point um, that promise isn't good because someone else's transaction is going to be number 300. Um, but as time goes on, you um, when all the federated servers, when the majority of the federated servers will sign off on uh, your transaction being in the block, then the system is basically built the block. Okay. Um, so it allows a level of granularity in the trust, and you get way more granularity than you do with Bitcoin, which is in the block or not. Okay, gotcha. So, all right, so fast-forwarding a bit till now, just about 2017, so if you were to tell someone that knows nothing about blockchain, Bitcoin, just the barest minimum, how would you describe what Factum does now to a, a real lay, lay person? Sure. Uh, so the analogy that I like to use now 
is um, blockchains are like a giant spreadsheet in the sky. Uh, anyone can write to it by tying a message to a balloon and letting it go up. And anyone can read it by looking up, looking at the right cell in the, um, in the spreadsheet in the sky. Mm-hmm. And anyone from miles around can see any of the cells in the spreadsheet. Okay. Now, the amount of data that can go in is limited because balloons cost uh, a dime apiece, so you can't just put all the balloons up and, um, and flood the network. Right. Um, but, um, and also the analogy goes on, once you release that balloon, it's really hard to get it back. And so once something goes into the blockchain, it's it's really hard to get it back out again. I've, I've likened it, I don't know if this is accurate, but it's like a Jenga tower. If you try to pull a piece out, the whole thing will collapse. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's, that's, the, um, that's the blockchain itself. So you can know if it's been tampered with. Right. Yeah. But, so, mm-hmm. so given that, all right, so... Continuing with the analogy, given that balloons have a cost, it's a it's an incentive to put information into the balloon as efficiently as possible. Sure. So is that what Factum's doing? It's allowing people that want to memorialize data on the blockchain to do so in a very efficient way. So let's take a step back. What do you mean by the blockchain? Well, I probably can't speak to it as well as you could, but you know, I'm trying to get at again the heart of what Factum's doing, just okay. at a real, real okay. basic level. The question was a little slightly rhetorical. Um, <clears throat> Bitcoin is a blockchain. Factum is a blockchain. Um, I actually like to refer to Factum as a uh, a mangrove of Merkle roots. Okay. Um, we have many blockchains inside of Factum. Um, so we have a, a top layer um, directory blockchain, and then we have sub blockchains that are um, contain only small specific data sets. Um, we've got administrative uh, chains that are on top of that, um, and, uh, and then you've got the the factoid management in there as well, as well as the, um, the entry credit, uh, which is the, the payment overhead. Right. And so everything is, is really tied in together uh, with all these Merkle roots um, uh, culminating into the directory blocks, which then okay. have Merkle root of themselves then put into, into Bitcoin. Um, but Factum is set up so that you can download the directory blocks and all that other stuff that's in there they're just little pointers to everything that happened to other people's stuff in um, and it's just basically 64 bytes for um, 10 minutes of some other application so if the stock market is putting in a gigabyte of data every uh, every hour, then 
if that's all just in one specific chain, that gigabyte of data is boiled down to 64 bytes that you have to download um, to do your land title application. Okay. So the, the whole point of a blockchain is that everyone shares it. I mean, that's it's a, it's a common, common use data structure. And Factum is set up such that you don't have to download the stuff that doesn't affect you. Okay, so I guess in one sense you're like a super organized, gigantic closet that someone could quickly look and see, oh, okay, the Wall Street data is there, and pull it out without having to extract tons of data and either use it or ignore it. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And so this is in contrast to things like Ethereum, where it's all about this giant state of the system where everything boils down to the Ethereum virtual machine state. And so everything kind of relies on uh, everything else. And so it's it's hard to separate those things out. So, all right, going in a slightly different direction. So Factum is, like, super organized and a very efficient way to pull data and organize it and all that, why tie yourself into the Bitcoin blockchain? Sure. So, in Bitcoin, there's a million dollars a day of electricity that's burned. Um, And in order to tap into that, you pay a small transaction fee every 10 minutes. What um, Paul Stortz uh, is a uh, is a pretty good thinker in this uh, space. He has this analogy of the um, uh, a radio station, okay. where when you are going down the road and you're between two cities, um, it's kind of hard to tell. Um, so it, you might have a radio station that's basically flipping between two different, um, yeah, different it's stations. Yeah, competing signals. Yeah, yeah. Jazz turning into you know, gospel music back and forth, back and forth. It's, it's annoying, and you don't have the information. Um, and you don't know what the, what the real station is. Okay. Um, the way... The Bitcoin blockchain works is basically the miners are broadcasting this energy. And so inside the the Bitcoin blocks, they are telegraphing to anyone who's listening that this is the channel that they are on, and they're broadcasting on this channel. And they're broadcasting with a million dollars of electricity a day. Um, You can have the Ethereum blockchain immediately next to it. And it's broadcasting on a with a million with uh, I don't know how much electricity is being burned for Ethereum, but um, it's also a very clear signal. And so you're not going to get um, interference from other. Yeah, could be like AM or FM. Um, yeah, maybe maybe AM with different different stations. Um, uh, actually, no, no. So this this would be like 
different frequencies on your on your FM band. Okay. And they're they're both very clear, and they're both in, in the same city. Um, and so, it's so powerful that you don't hear any of the stations that are in the other city. Um, so, this telegraphing of Of energy is uh, very good for doing something and you know, protecting against what's called a Sybil attack. I know that from the movie Sybil, the girl that had seventeen personalities. Okay, I think that's what the uh, what the attack is um, is named after. Yeah. <laughs> but the idea is, uh, if someone can control lots of different personalities, so let's say they're an internet service provider. And they've got a thousand different IP addresses, hundred thousand IP addresses. They can impersonate a hundred thousand people mm. if you equate IP address equals person. Right, a voice. Yeah. Um, it's very hard to create a system that can't be gamed in this manner. Mm. So, let's say it's. Um, one person per vote. Well, how do you count the people? Right. Um, can the vote counters resurrect dead people to, uh, to act as the vote? Um, can they make fake votes from nothing? Um, Bitcoin solves this by saying most electricity uh, wins. Okay. Most electricity wins? Okay. Most electricity wins. And it's very hard to... Um, spoof uh, and it, there, there's no good way to create electricity in a manner that is um, not useful elsewhere okay. um, and it's very hard to do to just make it from make it from nothing uh, so if you're an, I, uh, an ISP you can make all these IP addresses from just something you have lying around right. Um it's difficult to have electricity lying around. Mm. Um, and there's an effort and a monetary disincentive to wastefully have it deployed to fool people. Sure, yeah, yeah, and that's the other thing, too. So you have all this electricity. If you're not using it to mine Bitcoin, there are other things you can do with it. You can smelt aluminum. You can run server farms. You can... Um, Heat your heat your house more. Right. Um, electricity is fungible. Um, so the decision to use Bitcoin was because this, one of the things it can do is the Sybil attack. So if you are on the internet somewhere and your ISP and you're you're connecting out to a thousand different people. It's really hard to know, and only so you're connecting out to a thousand people. Only one of those people is is the the true um, authentic version. Right. Uh, you would have to go and check the work, and basically figure out um, that 999 people are lying to you mm. um, somehow. Even if you could, it's a lot of effort, though. Yes. Right. Okay. Uh, until eventually you find that one guy who's telling the truth. With 
Bitcoin, it's very, very easy to check the amount of hash power that's gone into it. So you can connect to a thousand different nodes and very quickly determine the first, the, the one that has the most hash power behind it. And you can very easily pick out that signal from all that noise. And this is a incredible boon to humanity because um, if you can insert your own signal into that channel, then you can make it extremely difficult for other people to to attack your system by uh, impersonating you. Okay. So, maybe advances, maybe not. Why not use Ethereum blockchain? Why use Bitcoin blockchain? For a fact. Sure. Good question. Um, first off, Ethereum didn't exist when we started. Okay. Um, there are a lot of things that uh, didn't exist that exist now. Um, when, two years ago, two more than two years ago when we started this project mm-hmm. um, that would make incremental improvements. Um, Ethereum is a um, is good for maintaining a, a global state um, and we are going to be anchoring into Ethereum. Um, mm-hmm. So the one of the big problems with um, Ethereum is the Oracle problem. Um, and Factum is a data layer. And so one of the things that um, can be useful is by um, collecting all this data and use it as the input uh, to an Oracle. Um, and with your Ethereum smart contract, uh, it would be easier to have only uh, one degree of freedom rather than two degrees of freedom. Okay. Uh, because Ethereum can be Bitcoin aware. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, putting, putting data into Ethereum is, um, is definitely possible. And you said you, in fact, is planning to anchor to Ethereum as well. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, anchor to both Bitcoin and Ethereum? Or? Yeah, I mean, it's not really a um, uh, a limiting factor where we place the uh, the Merkle root of the um, uh, um, of the Factum blockchain. Will you duplicate, or how are you allocate? Oh, yeah, that's the idea. It gets duplicated. Okay, why? Why, why duplicate on both chains? Well, so... In Bitcoin has this incredible hash power. Um, Ethereum is, I mean, there are several Ethereums at this point. Um, you mean classic versus regular Ethereum? Oh yeah, you've got Expanse. You've got uh, they fork. Uh, they forked last week. You know. The the whole point of the. Um, the single radio channel is everything is concentrated on this on this one channel. Um, so I'm not sure if Ethereum is quite mature enough to um, 
to, to, to dump Bitcoin. And as a follow-up, there's not really a, a benefit of, of, of dumping one over the other. I mean, you use both, you get the benefit of both. It's just more, it solidifies the fact that what you're putting in there is, is what you put in there. Mm-hmm. You just have two voices that, um, how would I put it, two vetted voices that are saying, yes, the data is there, and the mm-hmm. data is what you're saying is. Yeah. Okay. Any other contenders for a third place to anchor to, or a fourth place, or you think Ethereum and Bitcoin will be enough? It's, uh, we don't know what the future will hold. I mean, there's, uh, and it's not really up to us. So the, once we get uh, past milestone three, the uh, fact will be a, a distributed autonomous um, system hmm. where uh, the, the Factum Foundation doesn't really have much control because the federated servers are going to be run by um, many different third parties that are not us, hmm. at which point uh, we don't really have a good say-so over what, um, what it can do. Hmm. Um, so I mean, very much like like Bitcoin. Um, the uh, there are a lot of people who complain about how um, uh, the the blockstream, the Bitcoin core guys control Bitcoin. They don't. They do control the the shelling point. So it makes sense to follow what they recommend because other people will follow what they recommend. Um, but if the blockstream guys put in blacklists or they put in um, sensor censorship features into it, people would pretty quickly stop running their software. Gotcha. Um, all right, so what, right now, what are the most interesting use cases for Factum? Where is it being used right now that you can talk about that, uh, again, is interesting? Sure. How is it helping? Who is it helping? So... Um, Factum being a document management system, um, there are a couple of, uh, of high-profile uh, clients that we've got uh, right now. Uh, the first one is the uh, Department of Homeland Security in the United States. Um, so we're using uh, the Factum blockchain to secure Internet of Things data. Um, so um, can't I can't really go into too much uh, detail about their stuff, but the idea is um, it prevents tampering of the data uh, by publishing the data into the blockchain. Okay, great. And if any data is tampered with, you can uh, tell. And if any data is deleted, you can also tell. So there are some computing technologies out there that do uh, time stamping. Timestamping and publishing are very different. So, timestamping is just a way of uh, showing that some document has existed before some point in time. Two conflicting documents can exist before a point in time. Right. Okay. Um, it's publishing 
which solved the double spend problem in Bitcoin. Um, so, if there is a, if there are two conflicting transactions in the Bitcoin blockchain, that conflicting transaction in that block invalidates the entire block. Um, so, and in in Mastercoin or Omni, as it's called now, um, a second conflicting transaction. Uh, is basically considered invalid and just gets thrown away. Um, so publishing is is way more valuable uh, in the in the document management space. It is it shows you if you have something that's missing. So if you are only doing timestamping uh, and you've got a stack of uh, ninety nine documents, uh, digital documents. Right. Um, you can have proofs back down to the Bitcoin blockchain for all 99 of them. What you can't do is have a proof that you're not missing that 100th one. Okay. For that, you need publishing. Okay, right. Where you would basically take, do something along the lines of taking the hashes of all 100 documents and putting all the hashes into the blockchain. And then later on, can go and show that uh, you have 99 documents here, where's this 100th one, the person signed the hash of it way back when when they were compiling this set of documents. Right. Um, I'd like to talk about, um, uh, have, have you read uh, the book uh, 1984 by George Orwell? It's been many years ago, yeah. Okay. Um, the antagonist in that book um, has a motto. Uh, who controls the past controls the future. Who controls the present controls the past. So what this means is <clears throat> things that happen or are allowed to happen or agreed on that can happen uh, in the future say, if you sell your car, um, are contingent on things that have happened in the past. Right. Uh, that you purchased the car. Um, the record of the things that have happened in the past exist as embodiments in the present. Okay. And so the... The DMV keeps a record of, of who owns what cars. So, who controls the present controls the past. So the DMV controls who owns what cars. Right. And by adjusting what has happened, what the records say about what happened in the past, they can control if you can sell your car or not. Right, gotcha. Um, The blockchain technology and Bitcoin upends that because now the DMV, they can't erase a record that has happened. Or alter one, yeah. Gotcha. Yeah. And the Bitcoin blockchain... So in order to adjust this record in the past, they would need to burn a million dollars worth of electricity every day that they wanted to reverse history on. 
And even then, you could see that it was happening. Okay, gotcha. Any other, or besides the Internet of Things, uh, Department of Homeland Security, any other really interesting use cases that are different that Factum is using, playing a role in? Yeah, yeah. Um, another customer that um, recently has been announced is uh, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. Um, they uh, approached us to um, try and innovate and create a new method of managing medical records for the developing world um, using this blockchain technology. Um, and so we uh, we thought a little bit about it and came up with a um, pretty clever way of uh, leveraging a lot of cryptography in order to build a system such that uh, you can have a, uh, a password that unlocks your um, your medical records and uh, that uh, can basically give you your records. Um, and it puts the control of the records in the hands of the patient mm. rather than more traditionally it's been in the control of the doctors or the clinics. And they'll have multiple clinics all over the place that are keeping their own data sets and right. they may not talk to each other. And um, Record keeping is a, is a messy problem. And so by... Um, applying new technologies to record keeping, we can um, dramatically uh, increase the efficiency and the um, correctness um, and the accessibility of records, of medical records. Okay. Um, and so uh, recently on the, uh, the crypto show, um, uh, Tiana Lawrence and I uh, talked uh, for about a couple hours about uh, this uh, Gates uh, system right. that, okay. uh, that, we're, that we're building. Maybe uh, one last use case you know, for a third one. Um, sure. So a uh, project that we were um, working on early on with was um, with the uh, government of Honduras, we were going to... Uh, help them with their land title problem. Um, so you may trust the government that you have currently. Will you trust the next government which is elected, which is your political opposition? And you still have to live in that country even when the opposition is in party. Right. Uh, so it makes sense to build systems such that the next guy can't seize all your land. And so by building an um, uh, electronic system where you've got a database administrator, when it's the political opposition, um, he can update that database just as easy as you could uh, in the present. Right. Um, and grant themselves beachfront property or something along those lines. Okay. Um, so it turns out governments move very slowly, um, and uh, we're still hopeful and we're still moving forward with, uh, with some of that. Um, but uh, there are other, uh, other projects that we're concentrating on uh, 
while that um, that project is uh, is moving along. Right. And um, I guess last question for now: what what do you see as the near and further future of cryptocurrencies, of blockchains, of your work? You know, near being the next year, far being five years. The near term, no, more of the same. Seems like maybe maybe a few different uh, innovations on the edges. Um, and uh, in, in the far term, it's it's going to change the world, um, and it's going to change how money and humans interact with each other. Um, I did some stuff with the, um, the the Federal Reserve back in high school a long time ago, and um, yeah, I never really got it. Um, but uh, and there was some other. Uh, there's another guy, Michael Casey. Uh, he recently was interviewed on Forbes, um, talking about how uh, he was a Wall Street Journal reporter for years and years. And it wasn't until he started to understand Bitcoin that it put the rest of the financial system, it, it framed it in a different light such that he could understand it. And I've had a similar experience where by me understanding Bitcoin more, it gave me a lens to look at the rest of the financial system. Um, and uh, so all these libertarians have been talking about for years and years how the U.S. dollar is a debt-based system, and it never really clicked in with me. Um, but uh, after understanding Bitcoin, this whole system started to make sense. Now, debt will never go away. Um, there's a, a, a book that's a highly touted uh, Debt the First 5,000 Years. Um, the, um, the guy talks about how humans have always uh, owed each other various things. And that's never going to go away. Um, so imagine a, uh, a world of um, even with Full asset-based money with hyper-Bitcoinization, as some put it, where um, you have no debt-based money. Right. You're still going to need debt. So when a, a rich guy who owns six houses suddenly finds himself short on cash, um, he needs to get some cash, he'll want to take out a mortgage on one of his houses um, to get some liquidity such that he can uh, do do things that are useful. Um, and so that mortgage is a debt that is owed from one person to the other. Um, and it won't, uh, won't ever go away. So what 
blockchain technology will do is allow that mortgage to be tracked and, um, and looked at and uh, make a lot of the fraud that uh, in the 2007 uh, crash uh, make that uh, melt away a little bit. So maybe people will see a bubble coming, perhaps because uh, maybe not so much the bubble part. I mean, that's there will always be bubbles. There all there have always been bubbles. There will always be bubbles uh, until humans change. Um, but the whole fuzzy record keeping problem mm. will uh, will go away. Okay, ideally. Um, for some people and some institutions that's a benefit Um, with fuzzy record keeping you can cheat and you can lie and you can take advantage of the system Um, Patrick Byrne has an entire blog called uh, Deep Capture where he talks about all the slop in the system in Wall Street and how people have been taking advantage of this uh, this fuzziness for years and years and making immense money off of it. Um, the, what Paul Snow likes to talk about is in a world where you have the option of dealing with your counterparties in an honest way versus a dishonest way or potentially dishonest way, it's going to be a very hard sell to the people who you work with to tell them that you want to do this stuff dishonestly. And you want to leave the option of lying open. And so for in a for any individual actor, uh, li- leaving the option of lying is open is a um, is a benefit, but overall, not so much. Okay, very good. So that's that's kind of my vision of the future. I only have ten thousand more questions, but there's no time. So all right. Yeah, I appreciate your time. Uh, there's so much to talk about; it's crazy. But uh, you have a lot of knowledge, and I, I appreciate everything you said. Well, uh, thank you for having me on. Yeah. You have been listening to Almost Here Around the Corner Future Technology Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Subscribe to this podcast, both to review, to discover more future technologies that are poised to transform our lives for better or worse, such as Bitcoin, artificial intelligence, 3D printing, blockchain, virtual reality, and more.